This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. This week, we're discussing Project Confrontation, the name for the Birmingham Campaign of 1963, led by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC. In December 1961, the SCLC had joined the Albany Movement, a campaign to desegregate Albany, Georgia, that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, had launched the previous month. More than 500 protesters had been jailed by the time William G. Anderson called on Martin Luther King Jr. and the SCLC for help. The arrival and arrest of King and of second-in-command Ralph Abernathy, did bring media attention to the Albany movement. But after King departed the city in August 1962, segregation remained. The Albany movement was considered a failure. King later said, The mistake I made there was to protest against segregation generally, rather than against a single and distinct facet of it. Our protest was so vague that we got nothing, and the people were left very depressed and in despair. Tensions between the SCLC and the SNCC likely contributed to the disappointing result in Albany as well. By 1963, King believed that the SCLC needed to do something to jumpstart the civil rights movement and there was no bigger goal than desegregating Bull Connor's Birmingham, Alabama, widely known as the most segregated city in America. The SCLC needed money, a lot of money, to stage a major sustained protest. And King turned to singer, actor, and activist Harry Belafonte to ask for help. Belafonte hosted a swanky fundraiser at his Upper West Side Manhattan apartment, inviting his famous friends, including actors Sidney Poitier and Ossie Davis. With a rousing speech by Birmingham minister and civil rights activist Fred Shuttlesworth, who said of their audacity to stage a campaign in Birmingham, quote, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live, unquote. The SCLC raised $475,000 for Project Confrontation, the equivalent of $4.5 million today. Buoyed by their fundraising success, the Project Confrontation team prepared their plan for Birmingham. They ran into an immediate challenge. Bull Connor, an ardent segregationist and opponent of the civil rights movement, 
had been the commissioner of public safety in Birmingham for two decades. But the city had just replaced its city commission government with a mayor-council government, in part to oust Connor. On April 2, 1963, Albert Boutwell defeated Connor in the runoff of the mayoral election. Many in Birmingham wanted to give Boutwell a chance before rushing into protests. But Connor disputed the election results and remained police commissioner. The SCLC decided to forge ahead with the plan. The first protest happened on April 3rd, when African-American activists sat at whites-only lunch counters in five department stores in Birmingham. Thirteen protesters were arrested, but it wasn't the immediate splash that the SCLC had hoped to make. After a week of actions, there had been only 150 arrests, not enough to fill the jails that would generate the kind of response that the SCLC wanted. The plan, drafted by SCLC Executive Director Wyatt Walker, was to escalate and escalate and escalate. On Good Friday, April 12th, King chose to escalate by joining the protests himself. King and Abernathy marched from the 6th Avenue Baptist Church in Birmingham and were quickly arrested. In jail, King was kept in solitary, but he was visited by an SCLC lawyer, Clarence Jones. Jones brought newspapers to King, and in the Birmingham Post-Herald, King saw an op-ed written by eight white religious leaders criticizing the campaign and calling the protests, quote, unwise and untimely, unquote, while labeling King himself an outside agitator. King decided to respond, writing what would become known as the nearly 7,000-word letter from Birmingham jail. In response to the charge of the actions being untimely, King wrote, quote, We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. Unquote. Even with the increased media attention from King's arrest, the Birmingham campaign was struggling. As many of the black residents of Birmingham, understandably, feared reprisals, such as being fired from their jobs if they joined the protests. SCLC Director of Direct Action and Nonviolent Education, James Bevel, devised and initiated a daring idea to work with a group who didn't fear such reprisals, the children of Birmingham. On Thursday, May 2nd, 1963, more than 1,000 students, trained in nonviolent techniques by Bevel, 
skipped school, and gathered at the 16th Street Baptist Church to march downtown. They left the church in groups of 50, singing freedom songs, and they were quickly arrested. As each group was arrested, the next group marched out of the church, filling the city's jails by the end of the day. The next day, Friday, May 3rd, Double D Day, another thousand students skipped school and assembled at the church to march. Bull Connor was outraged and ordered their dispersal with fire hoses turned up high enough to knock them over and police dogs attacking them. The SCLC finally had the media attention it needed to get the world to notice, and especially had the attention of President John F. Kennedy and his brother, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. That evening, King said to the crowd, quote, Don't worry about your children who are in jail. The eyes of the world are in Birmingham. We're going on in spite of dogs and fire hoses. We've gone too far to turn back now. Unquote. The crowd agreed, and the black community of Birmingham consolidated behind King and the SCLC. After repeated marches and protests, on May 10th, King and Shuttlesworth announced that they had reached a deal with the city of Birmingham to desegregate public spaces, to hire black workers in city stores, and to release those still in jail. Even with the agreement, desegregation in Birmingham happened slowly and was violently resisted. But the events in the city inspired protests throughout the country. The events in Birmingham also convinced the Kennedy brothers that they needed to act. On June 11, 1963, President Kennedy, in a live televised address, said, quote, now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. The events in Birmingham and elsewhere have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state or legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. Unquote. After Kennedy's assassination, a few months later, President Lyndon B. Johnson took up the baton finally signing the Civil Rights Act into law on July 2, 1964. Joining me now to help us learn more about the Birmingham campaign is journalist Paul Kicks, author of You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Hi, 
Paula, thanks so much for talking to me today. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. So let's start by talking a little bit about why you wrote this book. You talk about it a little bit in the preface to the book. It's different than the other kinds of things you've written. So what, what was your inspiration? It was really my kids in the end. It was, so I'm a white man. I'm married to a black woman. Our kids identify as black. And it was actually the George Floyd's death. Uh, my wife, Sonia, grew up in inner city Houston. She grew up in the neighborhood next to George's. Uh, George's was third ward. Sonia's was fifth ward. George was Sonia's age, 46 at the time of his murder. Sonia's had Sonia had cousins who went to Yates High, which is where George went to high school. In fact, those cousins remember George being the tight end on the football team that made it to the state championship game. So their histories overlapped, which is a long way to say that when George died and the footage was shown on CNN, we did not shield our kids from it. Uh, the boys, we have twin boys. They were then nine. Our daughter was then 11. And this was the first time we had done this with uh, innocent black people, predominantly men who had been killed by cops and their footage had been relayed either via body cam or cell phone footage. So as a result of that, the boys in particular had a lot of really tough questions about what exactly this meant. And I'll save some of that for the book itself about like what exactly they asked. But I will say now that it was... It was a sort of thing where they like this despair set in for the with the kids over the over the latter half of 2020. 2020 was a really hard time. Like there were times where the boys would just leave the room in tears. Like there was another uh, there was another man, Jacob Blake, who was shot in the back by Kenosha, Wisconsin cops while his kids screamed from his car. Uh, and one of our boys was like, why do they keep trying to kill us? And this was so anyway, it was something that Sonny and I really had to deal with. Sonny and I had both read a fair bit of the civil rights but a civil rights movement's memoirs. And and what we found was like, what I found, I should say, especially as somebody who loved history and has written history books before, was that there was some period, there was one period in particular, the 10 weeks of the Birmingham campaign that I was just endlessly fascinated with. And anytime I'd have a chance, I'd explain it to people about why it was so fascinating. And that basically has to do with the fact that like the SELC was broke going in to that campaign. They were going to easily the most racist, easily the most violent place in America. To give you a for instance, the police raped black women in their patrol cars. The Klan castrated black men. CBS's Edward Arthur Murrow, he goes down to Birmingham just prior to King arriving there. And he said that he had not seen anything like this place since Nazi Germany. So that was Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. And King and the SELC they go down there really, and in Wyatt Walker's words, which was the uh, executive director at the time of the SELC, he said, we will either break segregation or be broken by it. They really meant that. Like this was their last ditch attempt. So I saw just for the purposes of story and story alone, something that was captivating. But I also saw the more I researched it, not just a gripping narrative, but really like a guide for life, a guide for how any of us could live. And so ultimately, I committed myself to writing the book. This was so weird, Kelly, because so there are great, I should say, first off, there are amazing, like I could praise for the good chunk of this hour, the other civil rights books that are phenomenal, right? Taylor Branch's works, Diane McWhorter's, I mean, Garrow's stuff. I mean, the list is very, very, very long. However, in all of the time I'd spent researching it, there was not, believe it or not, a single book 
that just dealt with the 10 weeks of the Birmingham campaign, which I saw as absolutely critical because what happens is like there had been no national civil rights victories yet in 1963. Montgomery bus boycott, sure. But even people in Montgomery were saying by 1963 that they were they were riding in the back of the bus again as if it were like 1943, right? So they don't have any success. They're broke. They're going to the most violent place in America. And then after Birmingham, everything changes, right? It's because of that that the Kennedy brothers finally get aligned with civil rights. That leaves the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, King's Martyrdom in 68. And for somebody like me, I really and truly believed that what happened in 1963 allowed me to marry Sonia in a former Jim Crow state of Texas. I've actually heard when I've told this to other people, like, oh, that's not really true. It's like, well, maybe civil rights would have happened. But at the same time, we went a hundred years after emancipation with Jim Crow law in the South, right? Like a hundred years. What changes? The Birmingham campaign in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. Then everything changes. So I was like, I want to write this book for my kids with the understanding that Hey, here's the here's what I think is a 10-week period, the most critical 10-week period in the 20th century of America that basically, you know, in some sense gave you your life, right? And also to bring it back to 2020 is really just it is unbelievable how high the odds were, how long the odds were of them succeeding down there and they were just it wasn't as if they were completely like courageous the entire time. I should say that. They were, there were tons of doubt. There was tons of fear. There was tons of second guessing. There was tons of sniping at each other. There were tons, there were huge egos in Birmingham among the civil rights leaders. But they came together and what they did literally changed America. So uh, that is the guide for life thing that I wanted, that I, you know, mentioned a minute ago. That's what I really wanted to try to relay. And yes, it was for my kids, but really coming out of 2020 and, and coming out of the pandemic. I mean, like, I don't know about you, Kelly, but like I gave up on social media for a long time. I'm like, I'm just tired of the bitch fests all the time. Like, I'm tired of how negative everybody is. It was infecting me. And I wanted to basically write a book that was like, look, if you just need inspiration in any way in your own life to do the work that you want to do, whatever that work may be, whatever your purpose is, right? Let what happened in Birmingham be a guide for how you can lead your best sort of life. So yeah. that's that's really why I wrote it. So you mentioned a minute ago the egos involved. So I I, I want to talk a little bit about the personalities. There's so many big personalities, Huge personalities in this story. Yeah. There's the Kennedy brothers. There's Martin Luther King. There's James Bevel. Like the, these are really big personalities. And Bull Connor, of course. Yeah. And that that's such an important piece of the story and and how it comes together and how they're playing off each other and and making things work. Can you talk a little bit about that about the all these people who are involved in this in this such important ten weeks? Yeah. So this was actually the thing that was most fascinating to me when I was deep into the research, because I don't know about you, but I had this sense when I was growing up that the civil rights movement was almost cast in this in this like angelic preordained hue, you know, like, oh, this is going to work out. And all these people were great. These people were these not people, these pastors of the civil rights movement. And the book is not just about King. It's actually predominantly about one of them, as you just men mentioned a minute ago, James Bevel, and then also Fred Shuttlesworth, who I think should be as famous as King, as well known as King. He's a Birmingham pastor. And also Wyatt Walker plays a pretty large role in the book. He was then the executive director. So it's those three deputies and King. And the reason I, I'm talking about those three deputies and King is because they 
Bevel and Walker pretty much hated each other, like openly despised each other, worked to undercut each other. And they're within the civil rights. They're within the SCLC. They are all pastors, by the way, too, right? Like these are men of the cloth who are acting very much like sinful human beings. And I loved that. I loved that because finally, like, let's show them for the flawed people they were. Because I think actually it's through our flaws that we end up sort of revealing our 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 humanity. And that's what I wanted. That's why I spent so much time like really letting the reader know, okay, here's who he is. Here's kind of how, here's the fight that he was maybe having with somebody else. Like there's huge class biases between somebody like Fred Shuttlesworth and Martin Luther King. I didn't pick up any of this in, in high school or college. You know, it was really once I got into the research, I was like, wow, this is fascinating. A lot of the conversations we're having today, they were having then. A lot of the, the struggles we have today, they were having then. Yeah, I think too, I didn't realize really before reading this book that how much of an evolution Robert Kennedy goes through over the 60s about race, about civil rights, about all of these topics. Could you talk a little bit about that evolution? Because it's so key to what's happening here. Yeah. So in some sense, Robert Kennedy is the character who transforms the most. He was at the outset openly somebody who said, I am Jack Kennedy's protector, meaning that like, if he did not fully trust Martin Luther King and he did not, he thought there was, he didn't understand why King was always trying to protest in the, in the America that the, that the Kennedys ruled. So if he couldn't trust him, he was not going to allow his brother to trust him at all. And, uh, and openly suspicious, active, actively working against the civil rights movement and against the SELC in particular, across 1962 and 1963. And then what happens is he starts to see like this idea of suffering becomes this huge metaphor. And what it means is basically like, it's a, frankly, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it right now, but basically James Bevel, Fred Shuttlesworth, even especially King, they would talk about how if you are black and if you want to protest and if you want to be a part of this movement, you must turn your body into a vessel. You must become in a metaphor of the black experience itself, meaning that you are going to get beaten by Bull Connor, his clan friends and the cops. And you must allow this because if we allow this, then perhaps a New York Times reporter will scribble notes about it or Walter Cronkite's camera crew will film it. And then the hope was the Kennedy brothers would watch that and then do the thing that that King and everybody else in the SELC and really the whole of black and to a, to a certain extent progressive America wanted, which was real and lasting civil rights legislation. Kennedys were completely, Bobby in particular, completely against it prior to the spring of 1963. And what Bobby in particular saw over that spring transformed him the images that he saw from Birmingham transformed him and he became he became the SELC's biggest advocate in some sense the the sponsorship that the Kennedy brothers ultimately offer in June of 63 the sponsorship of civil rights legislation was Bobby's doing Bobby convincing Jack that this is something that he needed to evolve to as well yeah it's fascinating So let's talk a little bit about the reaction of the people of Birmingham, the black people of Birmingham. 
when the SCLC decides, you know, they're they're going to come in and and they're going to they're going to help. You know, it, it it's almost like they they're like, "Yeah, this is great, but, you know, we're, we're not we're not quite sure. We're, you know, like you're coming from the outside. We know this town better. Like what what what's going on here?" Yeah, it, that, here's another part that was sort of the same minute ago about the angelic hue of of uh history. Here's another part where it was just like, "Wow, I did not know it was this complicated." Basically, Black Birmingham did not want what it called the interlopers from Atlanta, which is where the SCLC was based, coming in and, again, openly worked against the SCLC. It was led by a Black Baptist uh, minister's conference that was just so chilly and, frankly, in King's words, awful to the SCLC. He called them brainwashed at one point. And this is to their face, like that's how contentious it gets, like in meetings. <laughs> uh, and then you had, then you had, you had people like A.G. Gaston. A.G. Gaston's fascinating. He is, he owns a Gaston motel in, uh, in Birmingham, and it's one of the few that's open to blacks. So like world class entertainers are coming through the Gaston motel. He also owns a couple banks. He owned by that point a small college. Uh, he was well on his way to becoming the richest black man in America and one of the richest in America. Period by the time of the of what's what's called project confrontation those 10 weeks in Birmingham so he was he wanted nothing to do with it he thought what the SCLC planned to do was awful and part of the reason was because and i can almost understand this because so there was this election just prior to the SCLC starting and it was between Bull Connor who if you if you know a little bit about the story you may have heard that name Bull Connor the uh, public safety commissioner sort of virulently racist Barely cloaked ties to the Klan, runs his police department like the corrupt official that Bull himself is. And basically, like Bull was going to, Bull was running for mayor against the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce's guy, Albert Boutwell, who was a sort of dignified racist. <laughs> and, uh, and as a result, like Boutwell wins and people like Gaston. And the Black Baptist Ministers Alliance, they're like, well, look, the, to the extent that Black people could vote in Birmingham, and there was a small proportion of people who actually could, they voted for Albert Beltwell. Albert Beltwell talked, talked, talked about, hey, we're going to have equality. King and the SCLC were like, that's probably not real, but it came off really sanctimonious for King and the rest, Wyatt Walker in particular, to basically proclaim that we kind of know what's best for you, that pissed off people like A.G. Gaston too. You know, like, who are you? Like, you haven't lived here your whole life, you know? I just, any time, like, I actually, Kelly, love to read. I don't know that, I don't know if this is like the word for it, but like, I guess I call them small histories or contained histories, like periods where you can just go super deep on a few weeks. Like I read this amazing book probably five or six years ago. Gosh, now I'm going to blank. Just on the assassination of Lincoln from the perspective of uh, the assailant, John Wilkes Booth. Gosh, I wish I remember that name. Anyway, fascinating book. And that book, like when I read it like six, seven years ago, I was like, oh, that'd be so cool to do that. And then finally, when I started to piece together, well, maybe I should do this book on Birmingham. I had that John Wilkes Booth book in mind with a few other ones are just like, this is so cool when you can just go super deep on just a few, again, a few weeks, a few months, whatever it is, because it really acquires that texture. 
that even great books like the ones I mentioned earlier on the civil rights movement, just because there are these, and there's, I should say there's, I have nothing against those books, but like, because they're trying to be exhaustive and everything they're covering, they can't go super deep on just one issue. They have to go, okay, well, we've spent 50 pages on this campaign. Now we have to move to the next. Right. But there are, I found in researching Birmingham, there are entire worlds in Birmingham in those 10 weeks. So one of those things that's happening is, you know, the, the there's some resentment that these interlopers are coming in and they're getting a little bit of traction from the adults in Birmingham, but not a lot of traction. Not a lot of people are following them. They're not filling the jails like they're hoping to. And then it's it's James Bevel who says, I've got an idea. <laughs> and this is audacious. Can you talk a little bit about uh, yeah, using this children? Is, this is this was known so it's it's Project Confrontation is the name of it. And then a sort of subtitle is The Children's Campaign. And basically, Bevel, James Bevel, for those who don't know, he was, uh, I would say, I'm going to say arguably the youngest member of the SCLC. He was then in his 20s at the time. Completely idiosyncratic dude. The guy wears, he wears overalls uh, everywhere he goes, to, sort of like in honor of his native Mississippi and this sense that even though he's a pastor, he need not put on any airs. He actually wore a yarmulke and he did that because he thought that he was half Jewish. He he actually likened himself off of some prophets uh, from the Torah. And people in the civil rights movement called him the prophet because he tended to speak in sort of these Old Testament dictums like "Thus saith the Lord," saith James Bevel, right? So, like, dude is dude is out there. He's he's kind of he, he's he's his own man. And what James Bevel does when he gets to Birmingham is he's like, "Well, I see a problem here. Black adults, Birminghamians, don't want to protest because basically they, they would get fired by their white bosses for doing this. And it's not even just like domestic workers, right? It's people who are viewed as you know more white collar." There were teachers whose white superintendent would be like, as soon as you protest, you lose your job. There were uh, black lawyers in Birmingham who first had to just even fight to be admitted to the Alabama bar and then argue their cases in Birmingham's courts. And now somebody like King is coming in and saying, yeah, we want you to protest. And these lawyers are like, are you out of your mind? Like, I'm not, there's no way I can do this. I won't be able to feed my family after you're gone. So there's again, that interloper thing, right? Like I'm here. You're from Atlanta. Bevel's from Mississippi. And Bevel, maybe because he's a sort of he's a sort of ideologically as conservative as some of the the people in Birmingham, he kind of understands these people. Like he's from the same sort of rustic environment as a lot of Birminghamians. And so he's like, okay, well, if the problem is are the adults, what if I got their kids to protest? And the SELC was like, you are out of your freaking mind. Like that is insane. You're going to send these kids into what Edward R. Murrow called a couple, you know, just before we arrived here, like Nazi Germany, like they're going to be the front line. And Bevel's basically like, well, yeah, like protesters are protesters. You've got to have them. And King fought it for the longest, longest time. And so did Wyatt Walker, who, again, despised James Bevel. But ultimately, even Wyatt Walker, who was huge on publicity, on getting media attention to Project Confrontation, was like... He was basically like, I mean, the images would be, uh, this would be amazing, right? I think viewed only through the through the lens of how grotesque they would be. It, to see black kids going up against Bull Connor's cops, that would be on the front page of the New York Times. That would lead Walter Cronkite's broadcast for sure. 
And so ultimately Bevel won. And and that's like leads right into like May 1st, May 2nd, May 3rd, and, and D-Day and Double D-Day and, and everything that happened there. So you mentioned earlier, you have kids. I, I have kids. The thought yeah. of like, I understand the symbolism. I understand the, you know, all the reasons that they, they sent these kids out here. And I totally understand why the kids were like, yes, of course we will do this. Yeah. As a parent, it's hard to imagine like the thought of your own child being, you know, water hosed or bitten by yeah. a dog. Yeah. It's really, and it's, and it's, so here's here again is something where we've probably seen these images on TV of like the water hosed kids, but I just want to place that in in context. These water horses were mounted on effectively like huge, massive, almost artillery style tripods because the force of the water that gushed out was enough to knock mortar loose from bricks was enough to knock bark loose from trees at a distance of more than 100 feet. And you see actually some of the images that you don't see like in school or in any documentary. I saw some of the raw footage. It is grotesque. Kids are backflipped in the air. Their clothes more or less disintegrate on them. I mean, one girl, I'll never forget this. In one of the clips, one girl she is writhing in pain and these Birmingham firefighters keep the hose on her. And effectively, like she slides down this Birmingham street, 50, 60, 70 feet now writhing in pain and, and just screaming in terror too, about like, how much are they, you know, how much longer are they going to push me like this? Right. Then there's a the kids getting attacked by dogs, right? One kid was attacked probably at eight, nine years old, attacked right around his throat. There, there's a very famous image of a of a kid named Walter Gadsden who is kind of like kind of like um a somewhat modern context if you know the falling man image uh from from 911 there is this sort of open body like Gads, Gadsden in that photo is just like relaxed it looks almost serene even though it's a grotesque image and I talk about it a little bit in the prologue and there's this there's this own fascination with why I loved the Birmingham campaign because of that image as well. I thought it captures the whole of America in that one image, but like the Kennedy brothers saw that and they were just like, I can't believe that this is what is happening in America. And it was so bad in early May that Birmingham cops were coming up to King and saying, we've got, you've got to call off this protest. We can't keep this going. And King was basically like, I've had enough. Bevel was like, okay, now I'll bring him in. So there was this, I say that because it's like, there was this, again, this understanding that your body will become a vessel for suffering. Your body will become a metaphor for what is based, what has been for the longest time, the black experience itself. And there is also for the people who are carrying this out, this sense of callousness. So for certain parents to see this, it was so hard. There was one parent the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and the Birmingham Public Library, they were so, I mean, I got access to so much stuff. Some, a lot of the stuff were oral histories that had never been in any book form before. They've been, rec been recording over the last 20 years, all of these oral histories with everybody that's basically a part of what happened in 63. And there was this one dad, I'll never forget. And he was like, he was a member of Fred Shuttlesworth Church. So like on the front lines of being willing to protest. And the interviewer asked him, I'm going to paraphrase it. It was something like, what was it like when you saw your son getting fire hosed? And 
they normally in the oral histories, they don't, they just have the answer, but whoever actually typed it, they actually said very long pause, like bracketed it very long pause. Right. And then the dad said, it was one of the hardest things that I ever had to witness. And he was watching it that day from like, you know, maybe a hundred yards away. There's a, I ended up using that quote again. I'm paraphrasing that quote, but that quote does appear in its actual quoted form in the book. But that was the experience, right? Like the, there were parents who were furious with King that he allowed that. And King, like Bevel, they had to have a certain callousness to what they just allowed because they're like, it almost has to happen this way. Like White Walker used to say, everything must escalate in this campaign. Everything must get consistently worse. And that was, there was like, okay, we're going to use kids and they're going to get attacked and we have to be fine with this. And the kids were, but their parents weren't. So uh, I do another podcast where I talk to political activists about, you know, sort of what what can you do? How do, how do you use the skills that you have? And so, of course, one of the skills that Martin Luther King Jr. has is this ability to think and to write. And so one of the things that comes out of this 10 weeks is when he's in jail, he is writing furiously on whatever scraps of paper he can find. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and his ability to sort of take this terrible situation? He's in jail. He's in you know, solitude and turn that into something incredible. Yeah. So he, to set this up a little bit, thank you for that. So he is, um, he goes to jail at a time when he thinks that if he's in jail, the camp, the Birmingham campaign might, might be snuffed out because he has no idea if he's going to be there for six days or six months. And and he has a newborn baby that he has left. He has at a home. newborn baby at home. <laughs> Everybody that has protested with him thus far, they don't know what's going to happen with King in jail. Who's going to step forward? And if anybody else wants to protest while he's in, he's in prison, they too will be put in jail for up to six months. So it is this huge leap of faith, and I mean that in the personal sense, and for King as a pastor in the Christian sense, to say, "Okay, I am going to go into jail." And so he says in his first night that 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 never has he been in a dungeon like that. And the, what he meant wasn't just the confines of solitary confinement. Like this was arguably the worst night in jail that he ever experienced, that first night in jail. Second day in jail, he gets this uh, op-ed from eight or so different Birmingham clergy, some of whom had, had taken positions with him in the past to end segregation. And basically they're like, they're basically making an interloper argument. They're like, look, we really feel that it would be in your interest if the citizens of Birmingham just look, tried to resolve this on their own. And, you know, you're basically, and you are in, through your actions, you are making things worse as if, as if entice, like he is basically enticing Bull Connor to act. And that really upset King too. It upset King that these that these people of faith would reach this conclusion, and it upset him that 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 he was the reason that Bull Connor was acting the way he was. When instead he wanted to show that Bull Connor was going to act this way regardless, right? And he was going to argue that white America, the South, was going to act this way regardless. He just wanted to basically chronicle it. So he go he's in jail, and he reads this op-ed, and it's his lawyer Clarence Jones, fascinating character in his own right. And Clarence is like, okay, we got to talk about like basically how to keep this <laughs> campaign alive. And instead, King's like, I have to respond to this, meaning the op-ed. 
And so he just grabs scraps of newsprint. And over this course of, I think it's about seven days, he writes this searing, soaring piece of rhetoric. It's amazing. He's quoting Socrates, Jesus, uh, Martin Bieber. He's quoting all these, he's he's quoting all these people from memory. And what I tried to do in the book was show his own intellectual and spiritual evolution with respect to nonviolent protest and just basically how to live. Because he started his life as an intellectual in his college days in a vastly different position than where he was uh, by the time he's in the Birmingham jail. In some ways, that transformation is as big an arc as what Bobby Kennedy goes through over the spring of uh, 63. And King's sort of intellectual understanding was something that I tried to really put on the page because King himself puts it all in his letter. And the letter, of course, ultimately becomes the letter from Birmingham jail. And for me, Kelly, like, I mean, like as a writer myself and as somebody who for, you know, I'm 42, I've spent probably 15 of my 20 plus professional years also as an editor, the back and forth between King and Wyatt Walker about what they should include in the letter, what should, what they shouldn't like. Oh my God, that was so much fun. It was, it was one of my favorite parts to research, one of my favorite parts to write. And for me, it was one of those periods where I was just like, you think you know what this thing is, the letter from Birmingham jail, but there's actually, again, a whole world behind it, a whole intellectual, psychological, spiritual world behind it. And I wanted to try to bring that to the fore. Yeah, I'm the kind of writer that like I need to have all of my sources around me as I'm writing and I'm constantly referencing them. So the thought of just like sitting there <laughs> with like paper and a pencil and that's it. And your writing is just amazing. <laughs> and it wasn't even it was like in the early. So Clarence Jones, when he finally gets when 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 King finally gives him enough hints that like I'm not going to talk about the campaign while I'm in prison until this letter's done. Clarence Jones finally just relents is like, OK, so he brings him like actual paper. But before that, King was using like toilet paper and scraps of newsprint. That's how the letter began. And he's using he's, all these arrows all over the place. You know, this this line goes to this idea. And it's, it's like it's all it's all chicken scratch, as Wyatt Walker later said, to try to figure it out. So, oh, my gosh, I loved I loved that part of the story. So let's talk a little bit about uh, measuring success in something like this, right? Because they they get to the the conclusion, you know, at some point, these are people from outside, they need to leave. So we need to yeah. sort of reach a conclusion. But it's hard to know as they're leaving, if they have really achieved what they meant to achieve. And, you know, we, we can look back from the point of view of history and see it. But, you know, at the in the moment, you know, it, it seems like there's even among the the leaders of this a little bit of a disagreement. Like, did 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 we get everything we should have gotten? Or oh you know, yeah, huge disagreement more, between like... them. Yeah, huge, a very precarious state. And here is where we were mentioning. We were talking earlier about sort of class distinctions between somebody like King and somebody like Fred Shuttlesworth. So Fred Shuttlesworth is a Birmingham pastor, and Fred thought basically by the end of the Birmingham campaign, when a letter uh, to uh, an agreement to fully to at last desegregate was put in place, he thought basically that King had duped him because it fell far short of what they had all thought was going to happen for going down to Birmingham and trying to start that campaign. And he thought he was, if Shuttlesworth wondered, I don't know if it's fair to say he believed openly, but he kind of wondered aloud if what 
all of Birmingham was, was ever just a platform for King's own national grandstanding. And so this agreement's in place and it's immediately precarious. There's like the white authority immediately does everything it can to undercut it. And so then King has to like come back and try to make the best of it. But even then there's no real sense that this is going to hold. And then it kind of spreads and it goes everywhere. And then it's, then it, it, it becomes, I mean, if you are a person of faith, this is where the story becomes a little bit supernatural, a little bit miraculous. Cause you're like, wow, how did this happen? And it's basically in some sense, you know, people were inspired by what had happened in Birmingham, black people in particular, and they wanted to try to execute a similar vision in their own cities, a lot of them Southern cities. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in some measure why I wanted to write the book to show, like you were mentioning activists before. I'm not an activist per se. I always have been much more of a journalist, but however you choose to act in life, if it's just nothing more than moving toward what you see as your purpose, you know, like you don't know exactly like the lesson of Birmingham. One of the lessons of Birmingham for me is you may have a grand plan and they had a grand plan in Birmingham. They had it meticulously. Wyatt Walker was the most meticulous dude you could possibly imagine. He had it literally timed down to the second, how long it would take certain people to get from a church to a downtown sidewalk to protest. None of that mattered when it actually started. And so what, what matters instead is, do you have faith in yourself? For these uh, men of the cloth, do you have faith in God that this is actually going to work? And then do you have faith that after you have to, to use what you were just talking a minute ago, a quote victory, well, what happens after that? Do you still hold the faith that the world, that the world now will see the way, see things the way you do, that the world will kind of bend toward your vision. And this is one of those instances where it did. And it's just, it's even now I'm, I got a little bit of goosebumps because I'm like, wow, this, it actually worked. <laughs> yeah. So that we don't spend 10 weeks talking about these 10 weeks, which we probably could tell people how they can get this book, which I will mention is an incredible read, reads like a novel. So I, I, oh, I thank you. People thank you. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I think that the, it should be available basically anywhere books are sold. You can go to, you go online as well to try to get it. You have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live super long title, but it comes, it tries for me to sum up the, precarity of those 10 weeks, the faith that it took. A lot of times when you think about the civil rights movement, you think about like some grand, almost biblical phrase. I wanted this to be far more rooted, far more visceral in its title. And that title is actually a quote that comes from uh, a man I now admire deeply, 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 the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, one of the lead protagonists in this story. So you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? As I was putting this together and putting it out into the world, I thought a lot about, well, I thought a lot about like, we are in a point in America where there's a question about why like a white guy like me should be writing a book like this. And what I, what I turned to is just this notion of, I think my own, the fact that I am the head of a black household and have been for, you know, 15 plus years now is, is part of that answer. But what I really want people to take away from is right now, the political extremes are such that it feels like 
the identity politics of the far right and the far left is sort of putting in place an almost retrograde retrograde segregation. I talk about this a little bit in the in the epilogue to the book. And my kids notice it now too. And there again, Birmingham is a guide. Like King, at one point in April of that spring, there are white racists in the pews uh, attending one of his sermons, which was basically like a mass meeting to try to get more volunteers. And there's also people who were black nationalists and thought that, you know, basically like there should be an enforced segregation, which in some sense mirrors some of the far left identity politics about like segregating ourselves from one another, looking only through the prism of race to understand each other. And King, King said that he wanted to live in a world, this is in Birmingham, where little white boys could go to school with little black girls and these kids, white kids, black kids could play together, swim together, love one another. And then he said, yes, I had a dream tonight. And it was about this dream. And King would use that speech just a few months after Birmingham on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the, in the summer of 1963. But he uttered it, he uttered it just before that in Birmingham. And that's what I really want America to keep in mind, right? Like we are more than our skin deep identities. And, you know, we can, we can always strive to be more. I just, there is something so, when I read that, I just, I almost cried because it was just like, wow, he captured that. I mean, like, first, you know, the significance of what's going to happen a few months later, but the fact that like, he's identifying this 60 years ago and seeing like, no, 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 no. I, I actually don't align with the, with the black nationalists here. And just as much as I don't want white people to separate themselves, like that's not path forward for us. And we are in a much different place today, a much better place. Like Sonia and I can raise our kids on a shaded street where nobody harasses us for who we are. That's huge. That historically, that did not happen in America. We, this is incredible progress. And I just hope that people who consider themselves uh, progressive in one way or another, keep that in mind uh, that, that, you know, you don't want to ever get to the point where there is this segregation of a sort. So anyway, that's, that's the last thing I would like to say. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. It was, uh, I really enjoyed reading your book and uh, I hope people you. check it out. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! Bye.